Good morning, everyone. Hey, uh, if you're a guest with us, I just want to welcome you and thank you for being here with us this morning. My name's Rob, and I'm one of the ministers here at New Hope, and we're just glad that you're here with us. If you do me a favor, there's a Connect card in the seat back in front of you, and in a little while, um, you'll be able to, after the sermon, drop that in a tray as it's passed by. We, we love it when you fill those out because it helps us get you connected here at the church, but we also get to pray for you and your family when you fill out your prayer request on that card. Uh, that really means a lot to us because we, we meet each Saturday morning just to pray for you guys. Um, so a couple housekeeping items that we want to cover uh, before we jump in this morning. You can fill out that card while I'm uh, covering some of these. Yesterday we had Justin's Run for Hope here at the church, and we've been gearing up for that for a while. It was a really neat uh, event that we get to host. And we had a little under 500 people that participated in the run. I was not included in that. As you know, I'm allergic to running. So it, everybody else uh, that ran, thank you for participating um, or if you just came and you got to see it and experience it, it was just a really neat event. They had, uh, they had someone running in Spain. Diana Lynn participated all the way in Spain. We, sent her to, we got to be the her sending church, if you remember that. Uh, we had, there was over 30 people running in Nashville, Tennessee, as a part of Justin's Run for Hope in Arizona, all over the place participating. And so it was really neat to see that. And so thank you. It was a really great success here at the church, um, honoring Justin's memory, but also raising funds for, for all kinds of great things. So uh, in addition to that, today, uh, when you give to New Hope, this is really cool. I love this. We support global missions quite a bit, and we give a lot of our money away to missions. Today, right now, as we're meeting, one of the missionaries that we support in Mexico, their church is launching this morning. And so, like, when we're meeting here, they're meeting for the very first time in Mexico. And so when you give, you get to be a part of that. There's going to be people being reached. Uh, Joy Cronin, but Rodriguez is her last name now. We support her, and, and their church is launching uh, in Mexico this morning. I just thought that was really cool and wanted to share that with you as well. Last one's a little heavier. A uh, close friend of ours here at the church, Hal Rogers. Uh, if, if you know Hal, uh, then you're better for it. Uh, he's just a really good, good man. Uh, he is in the last days of his fight with cancer. The doctors have not given him very long at all. Uh, but we love him around here. Um, Hal's just made a really big impact on this place. And so I want to send him a video. I've done this all three services. So I'm going to grab my phone, and I'm going to scan the room. If you're like, I don't want to be a part of it, it's not going anywhere but to Hal and Deb. Hal's in the hospital. They really appreciated first and second service. I told first and second third service, I, I bet thirds can get really into it, so you got to live up to that. Um, I'm going to scan the room here in a moment. I just want you to encourage him. I mean, here's a guy who's lived faithfully for Jesus. He's in the last days of his life. And uh, I don't know if I've ever met anyone who... It pains more to miss church than Hal Rogers. Like he just can't stand when he can't be here on Sunday mornings. Um, and so this means a lot. So are you guys good with it? Yeah. Okay. All right, here we go. All right, Hal, here's third service saying hello to you. That was awesome. Let me make sure I hit record. <laughs> you know what? We might be taking two. <laughs> like, I don't want them to miss this. How did I do that? I got it. We're good. All right. Hey, this is a real place, and uh, this is not a, a guy that gets everything right, so... Thanks for your patience. Let's pray, and we're going to jump in this morning. Father, thank you for people like Hal Rogers. I love, love your son Jesus so well. God, I, I'm really, this morning, I, I'm feeling it more than I do most Sundays even. I, I just really love this place. 
And uh, I just love that this is home. I, I love this church. I love these people. This is a gift. And so I just want to pause and say thank you. And as your church meets this morning together here and in Mexico and really all over the world, I'm just grateful for your son Jesus, that he changes lives. And so as we open your word this morning and we study, I pray you'll meet us in this place. God, that you would uh, shape us and mold us into who you want us to be so that we can do what you've called us to do. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. In early 2014, uh, this man, Hiro Onada, uh, passed away. But his story is just fascinating to me. Um, back at, in World War II, he was a Japanese soldier. Here's a picture of him as a soldier. And when opposing military landed where Onada was stationed, uh, many of his comrades were killed in battle, but he and two other people fled into the jungle. And what's fascinating about this story is he lived in the jungle, convinced that the war was still happening for 29 years. He lived in the jungle, thinking that the war was still happening, fighting, running, fleeing. For 29 years he was there. Now, a few months after uh, the opposing soldiers had disbanded his, his post, and a few months after he entered to the, the jungle, they had found some pamphlets that were dropped from airplanes that told them the war is over, but they discarded those handouts as enemy propaganda and said there's no way that this is true, and they just discarded them, and they continued to run in the jungle. Years later, a reporter wanted to find this man, and he went into the jungle in 1974, and he found him. He found Onada, and he was explaining to him, the war is over, and he would not believe him. At this point, his other comrades had all been killed in shootouts or had been captured, and he evaded capture for 29 years, and this reporter is trying to explain to him, the war really is over, and he said, I will not believe that this war has ended unless I hear it directly from the lips of my superior officer. So the Japanese government found his superior officer, sent him into the jungle, and told him the war is over. And only then did he walk out of the jungle, the first time in 29 years. Now, if you're like me, you read that, and you're like, how is this a true story? Like, how can something like this happen? How are you convinced for that long, and how are you fighting a meaningless battle, one that ended so much earlier? How are you continuing to battle in this fight? And then it hit me. I mean, we do the same thing, right? Jesus' sacrifice on the cross has freed us from the power of sin in our lives, and we continue to fight. We continue to stay in the jungle and fight meaningless battles about our sin. Look, if we're going to really believe that what Jesus did covered our sins, then we have to come to the grips of walking out of the jungle of self-pity and shame. If what Jesus did on the cross when he declared it is finished. When he screamed those words, it is finished, that was a declaration of victory over the sin in your life. And here's the thing, you're going to battle sin. You're still going to engage in some fights with sin, but, but sin is no longer your identity. It's not who you are. You've been freed from that. And you've been given the ability to walk out of the jungle of pity and self, uh, self-shame and, and, and just feeling horrible and coming out of that jungle in freedom and living a new life. And for many of us, we struggle with this. But if we fail to believe that our sins are forgiven, I mean, really believe that, that they don't define us anymore. If we fail to believe that, we're going to spend our whole life fighting the battle of earning our self-worth, earning this forgiveness. If I just do enough, if I just become more, then I'll be forgiven. And we're going to put all of our energy into earning it instead of responding to it. Instead of recognizing the victory is won and I can claim the victory and I will spend my life responding to that truth 
for the rest of my life. This is why Paul wrote the letter to the church of Galatia, which we've been studying in chapter 5 over the last few weeks. And like Ryan pointed out to us last week, Paul really identifies two groups of people, two lists in chapter 5. The first is those who live according to the flesh, or to keep with our analogy, those who stay in the jungle. Though they know that freedom has been offered to them, they continue to stay in the jungle and let it identify them, and they continue to fight meaningless battles that leave them unsatisfied. Then you have this other group of people that will say what Paul says, live according to the Spirit. They walk in the Spirit. I'm not going to dance like Ryan did, but you know, that's, keep that in your mind. right? They live according to the Spirit. And so what we learn about that is, uh, you have to, if you want to live in freedom, you have to walk in the Spirit. And what that literally means is, every day you yield, give up more and more of yourself to the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, according to John chapter 16, Jesus told us how the Holy Spirit would work in our lives. He said the primary way he's going to work in your life is he's going to bring to the front of your mind and your heart my words. That's what Jesus said in John 16. When the helper comes, he's going to bring to your mind the words, what I've taught you, which means we need to be storing away in our lives the words of the Bible because the Holy Spirit wants to, in our moments of weakness, bring to the front of our mind and our hearts the words of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. This is what it means to walk in the Spirit. So as we study what we need to, how we need to live this out, last week Ryan walked us through this idea of kindness. And I don't know about you, but I've been wrestling with his application all week, and I hope you are too. We say this a lot, church is more than a seat on a Sunday. It's not like, hey, let's get done with this one and get to the next one. Last week he challenged us with this question, what act of kindness have you left undone? I've been wrestling with that for a whole week. As we look at the next part of this list, we're going to look at the word gentleness. There's a lot of ways you can study the Bible. And one of the fascinating ways to me is to do what we call word studies, where you grab a word in the Bible and you peel back the layers. And the beauty of the language the Bible is written in that's different than our English language is there's so much depth to the words. You can literally get started in on just a single word, and as you peel back the layers, you begin to see how meaningful this word is in Scripture and how often it appears in other places, and you begin to learn a lot more about this word. And so today we're going to do that with this idea of gentleness. Now, if you're like me, I've struggled with gentleness for a lot, large part of my life. Most people, the people that are closest to me, I don't think gentleness is the first descriptor they have when they're like, hey, tell me about Rob. He's just real gentle. Like, it doesn't, it, that's not how people usually describe me, unfortunately, after the sermon today. You're going to be like, they should, uh, but they don't. And I've battled it for a long time. Let me be real candid with you. I've struggled with it because throughout my life, I have really had a hard time reconciling manliness and gentleness. And I've had a really hard time reconciling the idea of being a strong leader and being gentle. How can one lead well and, and yet still be gentle and still be approachable, approachable but really gentle about the way they communicate because sometimes things need to get done and you just have to go and you just have to... And it's really hard to reconcile. Maybe you're not like me, but be gentle, all right, uh, if, you, if you don't relate to that. But I've had a hard time reconciling these two ideas, manliness or leadership and being gentle. And part of it is because of the culture that I've grown up around. I mean, look at the people that we make our heroes, the people that we admire in life. I mean, anybody seen Infinity War? No spoiler alerts, I promise. But if you've seen the movie, you know, like, who are the people that we make heroes? Would you describe the superheroes that you see in the movies that our kids look up to? Would the first word that pops in your mind is, he's real gentle. No, you're not thinking that. No, they're aggressive and they're outgoing and they're charismatic. I mean, what about just real life? What about our political leaders? When I think about our politicians not just the one you're thinking of, all of them, <laughs> I don't necessarily have the word gentle come to mind. Like, it's not the first word. And that's been that way for a lot of my life. 
I mean, even charismatic, well-known church leaders, I, I don't always think gentle. Like people that I've admired and looked up to, it's aggressive, it's go-getter, it's let's get it done, let's go, go, go. And gentleness is kind of lost. Let me, maybe, maybe you relate more to this. Gentleness has been hard for me in my life too because what I've looked at in the culture around us is I've watched our cultural, culture increasingly grow hostile and angry. I don't know if you'd agree with that. Like I don't know debate to be anything other than character defamation. No longer do we simply look at ideas and discuss them. We go after the person behind that idea, and we go after their character, and we take jabs at them. This is what debate has been in my lifetime. I'm a little bit of a book nerd, so I've read some history books, and I can, you can find both political and theological people in history that would show up to these debates. This is really fascinating. And they would be on polar opposite sides of a spectrum of truth, whether it's political or it's theological. They'd show up to this public forum in front of a lot of people, and they would participate in this debate. And they would present their side, and they would present their side. And then afterwards, this is really fascinating, they would go out to dinner together and oftentimes stay in one another's home depending on where the debate was held. Now, imagine with me during the 2018 political season, the election season, if the two candidates after a debate would have gone to dinner and we would have thought, hey, they're really good friends, they just don't agree. That's not the culture we live in. That's not the culture that the Church of Galatia lived in either. So I've struggled with this idea of how, how is it, if that's the world that I grew up in, the world that says I've never really known debate that didn't affect friendship. I've not really known deep, hard disagreement that didn't affect long-term friendship in my life. And I think for a lot of us, gentleness is hard because many of us, we've not really experienced it, let alone had it offered to us in a meaningful way when we disagree with somebody. Let me ask you a couple questions. When was the last time that you had a very deep disagreement with someone on a very important issue where you felt that your position was really understood? Or when was the last time that you had a very deep disagreement with someone where you were patient and quiet enough to actually come to understand their point of view? Where you were patient and quiet enough to actually listen very well and actually gain some perspective on their point of view? See, for many of us, gentleness... Like, we get that handout, and we discard it as enemy propaganda, and we go right back into the jungle to keep fighting, because gentleness, like, really? I've never experienced that. I don't know what that feels like. I've never offered that or had it been offered to me, so this must just be enemy propaganda. I'm done with this idea of gentleness, and we go right back into the war. But the Bible doesn't describe gentleness as any form of weakness whatsoever. As a matter of fact, the more you peel back the layers, gentleness becomes this incredible strength. And people that accomplished incredible things. The only two people that are directly addressed as gentle in the Bible are Jesus and Moses. They did a lot. <laughs> they were dynamic, incredible. And if you think that Jesus was anything but manly, you're not reading the right Bible. Jesus was a man. Jesus was, he was strong. He was a good, but he was gentle and approachable. See, let's take a look at this. The Bible really, when it talks about what it calls us to do, it really talks about two different angles on gentleness. One, it calls us that we need to be gentle in how we engage with people that are not Christians. And so it's very specific about, hey, when you're engaging someone who's not a believer, who doesn't believe what you believe, you need, gentleness is one of the descriptors in how we engage with people that fundamentally disagree with our theological viewpoints. But the Bible also very clearly talks about how Christians within the church are to engage with one another. And so it's very clear in saying, hey, when you have a conflict or something really bad happens and you have two Christians that are walking through this difficulty, gentleness is a descriptor that the Bible uses for how we are to handle our conflict. And so we're going to take a look at how the Bible describes this in a few different places. The first is we're going to turn to a letter written by a guy named Peter. 
Peter is fascinating if you know your Bible. He's foot in mouth Peter. He is, I'm going to say before I think. All right, he's the guy that when Jesus was betrayed, the night he was betrayed, he pulls out his sword, completely outnumbered, ready to go to war. And then he, after three years with Jesus, after betraying him and being restored by Jesus, the, the teaching of Jesus, the experience of Jesus sinks in into his heart, and he writes these words about conflict. Verse 15 of chapter 3 in 1 Peter. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, many of us, we stop reading there because we love that. And if you're wired like me, you really love that. I love defending the faith. He says, always be ready to defend the faith. Always be ready to defend your belief in Jesus, the hope that you have in Jesus. Always be prepared for it. I'm a fan of apologetics. As a matter of fact, uh, Ryan and I are going to participate in this worldview course in the fall that's really going to allow us to jump into the deep end of that. Like, this is an important thing to me, and it's an important thing in the Bible. The problem is not that you want to pick up a cause or that you are really passionate about some political viewpoint that affects the way that you see the Bible or that you jump on this or you, you all that. That's not, actually, the Bible says you should defend the truth, but the problem is when we start, stop reading three quarters of the way through verse 15. When we cut it off right there, because Peter's not done. He continues in this. He says, yes, defend the faith. Be prepared to defend the faith. Yeah, guys. And it's as if he's saying this. Guys, let me tell you something I've learned along the way. When you defend the faith, do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience. So that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, they'll be put to shame. Notice he doesn't say that your ability to regurgitate the truth, defend the truth, Win an argument is what puts people to shame. That's not what he says. He says, your ability to communicate it with a gentle spirit, as if you actually care about the person that you're debating against, not just the idea that you don't like. That is what will make them come to this place of repentance. That is what will make them feel differently about their position, not just the truth. Look, God is absolutely concerned with your ability to understand the truth and talk about it. He really is, but he's equally as concerned with how you do it. He's equally concerned with the spirit in which you communicate truth, especially in a world that knows anything but being gentle. But maybe that's not your difficulty. Maybe you're like, Rob, actually, I'm kind of wired that way. I love being around people that are not Christians. As a matter of fact, if I'm honest with you, I kind of like them more than Christians. <laughs> They're a little more enjoyable to be around. They're honest. They don't fake it so much. And, and they ask me really tough questions. I'm kind of wired that way myself. I really do like it when someone has honest questions and they don't believe. And we have a really good conversation even when they don't agree with me by the end of the first conversation. I actually enjoy the dialogue back and forth. Maybe for you, that's not a problem either. Maybe for you, your source of pain and difficulty comes from within the church. Maybe it's other Christians that have hurt you with their words. Maybe it's in the church and relating to other believers that have said things that have really hurt, words that have come in, and even if they were right, even if the truth that they were trying to communicate to you was right, it was anything but gentle, and it really didn't sit well with you. Look, we have a real problem when those of us who have the greatest truth on the face of the planet that the world has ever known, those of us with this truth are too preoccupied with our internal disagreements to share that truth with a world that's desperate for it. And we, we do a lot of that. Now, here's the thing. I don't want this to be a church bashing thing. But, so let me say two things. One, some of the most hurtful and difficult things I've ever heard in my life came from other Christians within the church. Some of the most mean-spirited, uh, just cutting deep, character defamation type comments have come my way from other Christians. But the most loving, kind, generous, 
life-changing experiences I've ever had in my life came from within the church. This is not about the church being good. This is about Christians being called to have gentleness describe the way in which we relate to one another from within the church. And this is a big deal to Paul. And so Paul uses the same word for gentleness that he uses in Galatians 5 and many other places, one of them being as he writes this letter to his young protege named Timothy. Timothy's at the church in Ephesus in 2 Timothy, the second time he's writing to him. And he writes this letter to him in a hostile world, and he begins to explain to him how he wants Christians to talk and communicate with one another when there's internal conflict. And he says this in chapter 2, verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So he doesn't say, what he doesn't say is when somebody's caught in sin and they've made a really big mistake, kick them while they're down. Or what would be really great is if you became a keyboard warrior and you began to type up a bunch of things on social media and let everybody know when this person messed up. He doesn't say, put the pressure on him from everybody else and gather as many people that are against this person as possible to make sure they really feel like they were wrong. But he also doesn't say, be passive. He also doesn't say, sweep it under the rug and pretend like nothing happened. He says, correct, correct those who are against you, who are against God. You have to correct them. But do so how? Gently. Do so with gentleness. When you engage them, your objective is not to humiliate them, but to restore them. Every single time we're called to confront sin, it's with the purpose of reconciliation and restoration, not humiliation and character defamation. And that's really important for us to hear. When we disagree with somebody, when we don't get along with somebody, when somebody messes up, the objective is not to come hard at them and to humiliate them. Let me ask you this. How many of you have ever changed your mind on a really important issue because somebody screamed at you and said mean things? Anybody ever been like, yeah, actually, Rob, I love it. That's like the best way for people to communicate with me. I just love it. Like, say something really mean and come really hard. And if you could get loud, that's really the thing that'll make me change my mind. No. Being angry and hostile and mean and coming hard at people, that doesn't change minds or hearts. And the Bible is clear on this. This is why Paul says, you want people to experience life change. You need to be gentle. The truth you have is important. The way you communicate it is just as important. And the way, the way in which you approach people with that is equally as important. Sinners are not brought to repentance with character defamation and jabbing because we continually just turn the blade and jab at them and continually point out their flaws and where they messed up and how they were wrong. And we just continually point and, and twist, twist the knife deeper and deeper into them. No. The Bible says that sinners are brought to repentance because of kindness, because of gentleness. And when we're gentle and we communicate truth with people, it opens the door for them to hear the truth that God will have for them that will actually be the source of change in their life. And Paul was so passionate about this, he actually repeats this idea. So he's in, the, he's in the fruit of the Spirit, talking about the fruit of the Spirit. He uses the same word for gentleness right away. As soon as he's done with the fruit of the Spirit, right down in chapter 6, verse 1, it's as if he really wants them to get this. Oh, and I listed the fruit of the Spirit. I talked about gentleness, but let me just reiterate this. And here's what he says in, in chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin... You who live by the Spirit, you who are freed from the jungle, you who know that there's life outside of this, you who know that the war has been won and you allow the Spirit to lead you, you, you group of people, you should restore that person gently and watch yourselves because you too may be tempted. Meaning when we respond to people's sin and difficulty in any way but being gentle with them, we are tempting ourselves to fall into sin ourselves. 
Like when you approach somebody and you're mean and you're just wanting to prove to them that you're right, it doesn't work. The goal is their restoration. The goal is that they would be fully and completely restored. Let me challenge you with this question. How many of you, don't raise your hand. (laughs) This is uh, just for you to wrestle with. How many of you have ever watched somebody caught in sin and then you you were not happy when you saw them restored after that? You ever battle that? You watch somebody caught in sin? Or, hey, shame on us if you've never seen someone restored from their sin. That's even worse. But oftentimes when we watch people get forgiven and they're fully restored to where they were before, we're often upset about it. We're often not pleased with it. But the Bible says the whole point in recognizing their sin and bringing it to light is that they would get fully restored. And they would, it would happen gently. Now, I struggle, too, because this is, all right, so this is what the Bible says about being gentle, but, like, how do we actually, how does this live out? And one of the reasons I really like to go to the life of Jesus to see, okay, how did Jesus live this out? How did he model this for us? Is because Jesus is never going to lead us where he hasn't gone himself. Jesus is not going to call us to do something that he didn't himself do. He's not going to call us to forgive. Well, he forgave. He's not going to call us to be gentle if he himself didn't model it for us. And we see this in a lot of places in your New Testament. I want you to flip in your Bible to Mark chapter 10. Now, how many of you have seen the Born Identity movies, all those Born movies? Now, that's my wife's maiden name, and it's spelled the same way. And so all my friends, when we were getting married, said I should take her last name. Because then we could name our first kid Jason, right? Jason Born, that would be so cool. I'm like, yeah, and you wouldn't have to live with it. I would. Uh, it's a horrible idea. But in those movies, when you watch them, they're like, boom, 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 boom. They're fast-paced, and the camera's shaking, and you're just like, ah, and you're trying to keep up. That's kind of like how the Gospel of Mark reads. Mark is action-packed. It's one thing to the next. It's Jesus is moving and going. So when you read about him encountering somebody, if you don't slow down for a moment, you might miss some things. And as I revisited this story in Mark 10 this past week, I caught some things that I had missed for years. And so let's check it out. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. It says, and he, Jesus... When he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus responded to him. Jesus looked at him and loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sad, for he had very many possessions. Now, I love this story for a lot of reasons. One, you've got this guy that walks up to Jesus, and he's wealthy, but not just in one way. Yes, he has a lot of money and a lot of monetary possessions and material, all that stuff. But the Bible also says he was very wealthy morally. So here's the thing. This is like a really good guy. This is a guy that's always done the right thing. He's treated people well. He's probably someone who's well-liked and appreciated. So he didn't just have a bunch of money and he was not a nice person. He was really good morally and really good financially. He had kind of everything going for him. And then he sincerely comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, recognizing that he's a great rabbi, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? There's a lot packed into that question. The first is this. When he says, good teacher... And Jesus corrects him by saying, why do you call me good? No one's good. There's really two things happening there. In that day, when a rabbi or a teacher was really good, they would come to him and say, good teacher. And a rabbi would correct him by saying, no, no, no. 
only God is good out of fear of blaspheming the name of God. Like, only God is good. You can say I'm a teacher, but only he's good. But what's even more going on here with Jesus is this. This man said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Meaning he saw religious behavior as the source of everything for him. If I behave the right way and I do all the right things and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win the day. And so what do I have to do? Because I know I've done all these other things, but what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Because that's the one thing I don't feel so secure about. Tell me what I have to go do and I'll go do it because I have nailed it with everything else that I was told to do. I mean, I've been killing it. Like all the commandments, done, 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 done. Like I did it all, but I'm missing something and I want it. What do I have to do? And what Jesus says is this, like, hey, your approach to life, you look at things good and bad, and you look at your religion, and you say, the religion's going to help you deal with the bad things in life. But Jesus says, I'm going to flip that on, your, on its head. When you follow me, I want you to even rethink the way you look at the good things in life, the bad and the good. In fact, I want you to see everything different when you encounter me and you walk with me. And so he says to the man, um, hey, you need to go and give away your money because the money had a stranglehold on this guy's heart. We talk about that a lot, but two things I missed that I love. Right as Jesus is getting ready to hit him with the thing that's going to really deflate him, okay? Right before he says it, Mark points out something fascinating. Mark points out that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus did not look at him, turn around and say to the disciples, hey guys, pop quiz, you know the answer to this horrible question, right? He didn't turn around and say, hey, hey everybody, I'm going to level this dude, watch this. Like he didn't, it was no arrogant. It was, he looked at him and he loved him. He had a deep compassion for him, which means the tone in which he presented the solution to this guy's problem would have been gentle. And that's why this guy started wrestling with it so much. The next thing that really stood out to me is the way this guy leaves is sad. And I've always heard it taught that he was sad because he didn't want to just give away his money. But I'm wondering if there's something more. I wonder if he saw the love in Jesus' eyes. And as he's walking away, he's thinking to himself, I'm pretty affluent. I've got a lot of money, but I wonder if I'm walking away from something that would be so much more satisfying than what I'm holding on to. And he walks away sad because he encountered this gentle, loving spirit from Jesus. And he, man, I, and he walks away and he's unsure. That makes him sad. Look, when it comes to living this out, we look at our culture and how people like Jesus can interact like that. And like, it's always calm and gentle and listening and now, I don't have a lot of examples in this culture, and I struggled to find one, but I came across one uh, that I remembered from a few years ago. Many of you know the name Dan Cathy. He's the president of Chick-fil-A. I know we like Chick-fil-A around here. This is not like a go-buy-Chick-fil-A advertisement, but he's the president of Chick-fil-A. And a few years ago, he was thrust into the national spotlight without, like, like, against his own will. He didn't want that to happen when a reporter asked him some very specific questions about his views of marriage. And so the reporter asked the questions, and he just honestly answered it. He said, hey, I believe what the Bible teaches. I, I, I line up with what the Bible teaches, that marriage is for one man and one woman for a lifetime together, and that's it. Well, then they ran the story, and the culture just went off on them. The news media called for a boycott of Chick-fil-A. I don't know if you remember this. People in Chicago and Boston, political leaders, very aggressive, coming after him, saying Chick-fil-A's not wanted here. This is horrible. Then there was a group of people that said, hey, we want, to, uh, we want to go ahead and protest the protest. And so we're going to start this thing called Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day. And so what they did is said, hey, on this specific day, we want everybody to go and buy millions of dollars worth of chicken sandwiches. And so that's exactly what happened. Maybe you remember that. A lot of people went to Chick-fil-A on this special day. What's fascinating, though, is when you read the accounts, Dan Cathy never affirmed Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day, and he didn't participate in it either. It was not his idea. He did not affirm it, and he did not participate in it. Instead, 
on Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day, Dan Cathy quietly reached out to the loudest, most vocal protester against Chick-fil-A, a gay activist named Shane Windmeyer. And he asked for a quiet meeting. Many of us haven't even heard of this. And he went and he sat down with Shane Windmeyer. And after their meeting, and after reflecting on this meeting, Shane Windmeyer wrote this in the Huffington Post. Here's his recollection of that meeting, that quiet meeting that took place with the leader of Chick-fil-A. He said these words, It is not often that people with deeply held and completely opposing viewpoints actually risk sitting down and listening to one another. We see this failure to listen and learn in our government, in our communities, and in our families. Dan, Kathleen, and I would, together, try to do better than each of us had experienced before. Never once did Dan or anyone from Chick-fil-A ask for campus pride to stop protesting Chick-fil-A. On the contrary, Dan listened intently to our concerns, and he sought first to understand, not to be understood. Dan and I shared respectful, enduring communication and built trust. His demeanor has always been one of kindness and openness. Dan expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard of people being mistreated or being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A. But he never once offered an apology for his genuine held beliefs about marriage. It's fascinating. Deep disagreement. And no apologies for what he believed. Love, respect, listening, and friendship all at the same time, right in the middle of a very deep-held disagreement. This is what it means for the Spirit to produce gentleness in us. That though someone is on a polar opposite side of our beliefs, of our views, we can look at them like Jesus, and we can love them. And when we love them, we can extend to them a gentle response, a gentle engagement, just like Jesus did. But it's easier said than done. So like Ryan challenged us with a really great question last week, I want to challenge you with a couple things that I hope you will keep with you this coming week as you wrestle through letting the Holy Spirit produce gentleness in your life. The first that has helped me tremendously, tremendously in my life is this. Check your motivation before you engage. Check your motivation before you engage in any level of disagreement. Just check what is motivating you in that moment. It's fascinating that the word gentleness could also be translated humility. Same word used in a variety of contexts throughout your Bible. What that tells me is this. Before I can extend gentleness to another person, I must first humble myself before God. So that when that other person who has messed up or lost something or mistreated me or said something wrong to me, when they hurt me or when they fall into sin that really doesn't affect me, but I see them sinning, when, when they are in that situation, instead of jumping on that, I can say, hey, because I've humbled myself before God, I recognize that that could have easily been me. Like I could have easily been the one that messed up or made a mistake. And God has extended his grace to me. And so now when I look at that person, I can see, hey, we're in this together. I'm just as broken and frail as you are as well. Humility comes a lot easier for us when we really know ourselves, friends. I mean this with all my heart. We can humble ourselves and then extend gentleness to other people when we're able to see the weak and flawed person that lives inside the shell that we present to the world every day, in and out. We are broken, flawed people. And you can present the best version of yourself as often as you want, but inside you're still broken and you're still flawed. And when you can recognize that about yourself, you can say, Lord, thank you for your grace. And then you can extend gentleness to other people. See, humility and gentleness come hand in hand. I've said this to be humorous in the past, and I don't mean to be funny when I say this. This is true of all of us. 
If you are new here to New Hope, right, we are glad that you're here, but if we haven't let you down, just give us a little bit of time. We will disappoint you because we are just broken people following Jesus. We're not perfect, and we don't want to present a flawed, broken uh, version of perfection. We just want to be honest about it. We're flawed and we're broken, but we're saved by grace. We've been freed from the jungle, and we walk in victory, and we want to go back into that jungle and bring as many people out of there as possible. We want them to know that when Jesus said it is finished, he meant it, and that is a very true thing for each and every one of us. See, when we see our own sin properly, we realize the grace that's been offered to us, then we're able to desire, desire, not just offer, desire gentleness in our engagement with other people. The next thing is this, in addition to just checking your motivation, is this. Listen first. Seek understanding and speak wisely. Listen first. Seek understanding. Speak wisely. I've told you this before. I grew up a really angry kid. I, this haunts me to this day, if I'm being honest with you. Like, I've really struggled with this. My dad was killed in an act of violence that just made me angry. I grew up so mad, and I, I mean, I would use my words to hurt people. I've hurt so many people with my words. I grew up, if you said it the loudest and the meanest, you won. And so many other people have had to be on the receiving end of that from me. And I've carried that, and I've given it to the Lord, but it's, it's a difficult thing because our words are so powerful, and they're so, we lose so many opportunities. But somebody loved me enough to come into the jungle they really did. And they came in and they said, hey, if you don't get a grip on this, you're going to hurt so many people. And they shared a verse with me that I've shared with you before that has changed my life. And I carry it with me all the time. It comes out of the book of James, chapter 1. It's verse 19. It's the first verse I ever memorized in the Bible because I needed it. It says, dear brothers and sisters, which is so fitting for the way this was communicated to me. I really felt like this person wanted the best for me when they were correcting this in me. It says everyone should be quick to listen. So listen first. Like, don't talk. Just listen. Just hear it out on every level of relationship you have, whether it is very private or very public. Just listen first. Slow to speak, meaning choose your words wisely. Don't talk right away. Don't go with your first idea. Just wait patiently and decide what words need to be communicated. And then you'll be slow to anger. But what I've learned is if you will be quick to listen and slow to speak, anger doesn't rear its ugly head. When we're quick to listen and slow to speak, we're gentle and we're engaging we're loving and we can care for other people. What would it look like in your life? What would it look like in your marriage if you and your spouse were quick to listen? You listened first and you chose your words wisely. You didn't rush to speaking. What would it look like with your parenting? Many, of, many as your kids grow, it gets harder and harder to communicate. We just feel like, oh, they don't want to hear from me. What would happen if we listened to them? Doesn't mean you give them everything they want. It just means what if you listened and let them feel heard and then you chose your words wisely? What would happen in our community? What would happen in the church if every church modeled this? We'd change the world. The world would have no choice but to look at the church and say, that's how you deal with difficulty, with gentleness and love and care. Look, that can start like right today, and I mean this. You can walk out of here, and we can actually believe what we say around here all the time. We can take it to heart. We're sent. When you leave this place, God literally wants to send you into all these corners of this community all over the place, and he wants you to begin engaging people on all kinds of levels. If we really believe, when I leave here, I'm sent. And when I walk out of this place today, I'm going into a jungle where people are fighting a meaningless battle because victory has already been won, and I need to communicate to them the war is over. It is absolutely and completely over, and you can claim victory in Jesus. 
And what if we walked into that jungle and when we approached people, it was with gentleness, concern, and care? It would change everything. Let's pray.